Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. What you're describing is a very complicated, but nonetheless very now, I think, experience of knowing that our inner life and the inner life of the world around is in relationship. Um, but we are precisely, I think, at the time when we're trying to remake sense of that, trying to find out how not just our own life, inner lives are enchanted, but the, the cosmos, again, nature is enchanted too. The Medicine Path podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with psychotherapist and writer Mark Vernon. So I invited Mark onto the podcast after recently reading his book, The Secret History of Christianity, which I came across during my research into the roots of that tradition. And Mark has also collaborated with someone else I admire and enjoy listening to, well-known author and biologist Rupert Sheldrake. They've been recording a series of conversations since, I think, 2017, where they explore a number of topics that overlap with a lot of my own interests. So Mark very much feels like a kindred spirit, and I really enjoyed speaking with him a couple weeks ago. So if you're interested in the early roots of Christianity, or like me, have been trying to come to terms with your own Christian heritage and this somewhat difficult but intriguing character of Jesus Christ, well, then I'm sure you're going to get something from this conversation. I also highly recommend checking out uh, Mark's work, which includes books and courses on Christian mysticism, Dante's Divine Comedy, and the legendary English mystic and poet and artist William Blake. You can find out more by visiting Mark's website at markvernon.com. Now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with therapist and author Mark Vernon on The Medicine Path.
Okay, I'm here with Mark Vernon. And Mark, thanks so much for agreeing to join me on the podcast today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I enjoy talking about these things and hope that some insights will emerge. Yeah, we'll see. I never quite know where the conversation is going to take us when I enter into this. I try to be quite open and not have too much of an agenda, but I've got a a sheet full of uh, messy notes here because there's so much that I want to talk to you about. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I, I guess it might be helpful to have some context for what led to me reaching out to you. Um, as maybe people who have been listening to the podcast have heard, I've in another kind of uh, time of wrestling with uh, Christianity, and it's something that's called to me uh, throughout the years of my spiritual exploration. It's like I keep getting drawn back to my Christian roots and uh, being forced to kind of reckon with it and In this round, uh, it's been really important to me to learn more about the history of Christianity, because I realized it was something that I was quite ignorant of. Um, I was raised in a secular blue-collar household, but I was baptized Anglican and would uh, go to Sunday school with the neighbor's kids when I was a child. I entered into a Roman Catholic high school uh, of my own choice, because they had the best guitar program in the town I lived in. (laughs) So got some exposure there and went to religion class and asked a lot of uncomfortable questions. (laughs) And then um, in my adult years, uh, exploring things like um, South American shamanism and uh, yoga, I would always uh, end up meeting this figure of Jesus Christ. Uh, To my surprise, you know, I'd be down in the jungle in a ceremony and there's this figure of Jesus Christ. And uh, so I've been kind of like forced to reckon with this. Um, And so in this latest exploration of kind of going to the pre-church roots of Christianity, looking into the Gnostics, going through Jung's work on Gnosticism, um, trying to find uh, some of the real history out. And of course, you wrote this book called A Secret History of Christianity, which called out to me. And uh, it also referenced Owen Barfield, who I don't know a whole lot about, but I came across his term original participation, which helped me contextualize some things at a certain point in my exploration. So, um, that's the context of what brings me here. I don't know if that's going to help direct the conversation at all. Well, I can immediately resonate with the struggle with Christianity, um, which um, is very much part of my story, still ongoing, but also Owen Barfield kind of was a key part of feeling freer around the question Mm. of how to relate to, well, how to relate to the fifth figure of Jesus through the Christianities that swirl around him, um, which are very diverse and, and mm. some deeply off-putting. But there's enough, just about enough there that Owen Barfield pointed me towards in a way that has helped me a lot in recent years, at least, and hence, you know, writing the book. Mm. Yeah, I thought maybe a good place to start was uh, if you could share a little bit about your own history with Christianity and what brought you to write this book. Yeah, so I I was born in into an Anglican family, um, and church going was part of um, our routine. 
and uh, my father was a Church of England priest too, um, so it was right there in the family culture. And looking back, I can always I can see now I was always drawn to the kind of big questions of life, and more than just pure materialism. Um, but whilst I did up, end up getting ordained myself into the mm. Church of England, um, the culture of the church um, I found very off-putting, in fact. Um, it, it's, it's complicated because it's not that the Church of England is somehow bad through and through at all. Um, it does a huge amount of good and preserves a huge amount of good, um, certainly in the UK. Um, but it's just not really interested on the whole in what was drawing me towards Christianity, which is much more about inner life, transformation, the kingdom of God that's within. Um, yeah. It's very interested in things like social justice, maintaining communities, um, the preservation of various forms of culture, um, you know, like choral evensong and cathedrals, um, which are wonderful and beautiful often in their own way. But I think within that, I increasingly came to realize is a sense that we're somehow separate from God and that Jesus performed a kind of rescue operation, which mediated through priests and rites and rituals um, can be accessed now. And the premise that somehow there's distance rather than connection, I've increasingly realized, feels to me like a fundamental mistake. Um, and so finding a way back into what would have been called the mystical tradition within Christianity and flourished, I think, very early on in Christianity through the medieval period, but was rent from the main thrust of Christianity, certainly in the West at the Reformation, where inner life became deeply suspect. Mm. Um, that's, I feel, the um, the predicament that I sort of found myself in, um, but also, you know, has led me to try and write about it because I feel that something crucial is being lost, which certainly in the UK is at the heart of why the church, particularly the Church of England, just isn't speaking to people anymore. It's very striking that um, we live in a broadly secular culture, so there's many people who just aren't interested in it at all, but even those who are spiritual um, or spiritual but not religious, you know, questers of one sort or another, um, it's reached a point now where they often don't even think to turn to the Church Church of England um, to pursue those questions, um, let alone have tasted it and found it wanting. Um, yeah. yeah, so that, that's, that, that's something about how I've got to where I'm at, at least. Mm. So after you were ordained, you had some kind of disillusionment and left. And uh, was it in that time that you got interested in psychology? Indirectly, yeah. So the, the kind of the link between um, ordainment and um, the becoming a psychotherapist, which is <laughs> a different um, kind of ordainment. My, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is my which is my uh, um sort of main focus now um or, or one of the main strands at least um was doing a, um, a phd on plato um oh. and i half figured that platonism was a kind of background worldview to christianity and so um thought it would be good to take a plunge 
into Plato, um, found a way in that could add up to a PhD. You know, PhDs are often rather narrow creatures, um, but nonetheless, they're quite good for taking a deep dive into something. And um, but that led me to realize that ancient philosophy, particularly ancient Greek philosophy, was very different from modern philosophy. And it really was premised on the idea that you as an individual might become more and more resonant with the cosmos. And in that resonance would emerge insight and knowledge. Um, whereas, of course, modern philosophy is based on the scientific idea that you withdraw yourself from what you're studying and have a kind of objective view. So that in principle, it doesn't matter who becomes a scientist, the science would still be the same. And in practice, I don't think that's remotely true. But nonetheless, that's the ideal. Um, and modern analytic philosophy, particularly in the Anglo-American world, has um, modelled itself upon that premise as well. But So rediscovering ancient Greek philosophy um, was um, important for me. Um, and that then led me to the psychotherapy partly because I felt I needed it myself, of course, but also um, because that is focused on the idea of what's blocking you from understanding yourself, but also understanding the world more broadly and expansively as well. And that, that linked up to monastic traditions, um, which then links up to the mystical traditions. And so psychotherapy has provided a way back into, um, well, even Christianity, but, you know, other religious traditions too that resonate in the same way hmm. yeah i guess i'm curious as to what was the turning point for you that led you back to the church after this whole journey that you had been on yeah i, I still feel very um ambivalent about the church uh, i mean i'm not a priest or anything anymore um i did resign my orders as they put it um and can still feel the rise just yesterday i read the expression god's church um which was issued by a bunch of bishops um this very natural way that they talk about their institution as if it was directly um administered even um let alone founded by god i find that very tricky really um uh because it just feels um I mean, I know what they mean. They they want to feel they're standing for something in the world, but it quickly slips into a certain kind of uh, unthinking self-righteousness. Um, mm -hmm. And so I feel very mixed anyway about the church still, but nonetheless um, can find more tangential roots to connect with the Christian tradition. And um, partly through other writers, partly through um, thinking about um, earlier uh, say the patristic writers um, and of course the bible itself um, and and then there the, are certainly in the UK there's still plenty of opportunities to go into great medieval buildings particularly where the architecture and maybe the music speaks um, sort of over above through and around more immediate church forms um, and mm. then you feel you're in touch with um, a traditional spirit um, that's still alive um, yeah, so yeah, I have a, a sort of a bleak relationship with the church. That's interesting to me. I mean, I think I can relate. And um, a teacher said to me once that the mystic is at home in any church. Uh, and I, I, I feel that for myself, too, that I can go into these cathedrals and see them as kind of religious machines. 
And I think in some cases, the owner's manual has been lost that uh, never gets quite up uh, up and running and, and firing as it uh, maybe could have in the past. And, uh, but I'm curious for you, like, why is it, uh, why is it helpful or useful to still go to church, having the understanding that um, you're kind of seeing through a lot of it and you're going in with perhaps a different mindset than a lot of the congregation. Why is it important to still go and to be in that? Well, when I, when I do go, um, I think it's because you might say Christianity or Christian is my first spiritual language. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've read um, in Sufism fairly widely now, and certainly Vedantic traditions from the Indian subcontinent speak to me. Um, these broadly theistic traditions um but christianity is the one that i know um and um so it's useful for me to find a way of talking about it um and you know perhaps a bit like you were saying with the figure of jesus um he is someone that i can't quite let go of um and so it was really important for me and again owen barfield helped a lot in this to try and make contact with this figure of Jesus in a way that I could wholeheartedly do so and not feel I constantly had to sort of shed this, shed that, sift through something else. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it is Christianity less so, but still is in the air that we breathe in the West um, and um, still has a huge amount to offer and open up. Um, and then, you know, maybe having to do the work to find that true spirit um, actually is part of finding what it's got to offer. Um, so mm-hmm. rather than it just being a kind of cultural Christianity um, that is good at supporting society, um, and that's not to be sniffed at, you know, it's good to live in a stable society. Um, but nonetheless, um, I don't think at heart Christianity is about just maintaining the status quo, quite the opposite. It's about perceptual transformation. It's about the kingdom of God. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of glad to be wrestling with it. Put it like that. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I feel like almost obliged to wrestle with it because it was so important to my ancestors. Um, you know, only two generations ago, it was only in my parents' generation that there was a, a, a refusal of their spiritual inheritance. Um, but just beyond that, uh, you know, my, my ancestors were deeply spiritual people. It, it was really the core of their life and uh, guided them through their lives. And so it feels to me that maybe my ancestors are dragging me back uh, to wrestle with this. Maybe it's uh, this figure of Christ uh, himself. Uh, but regardless, I just, uh, I can't turn away from it. And it has actually, like, now that you're kind of talking about your own experience, I do see how the wrestling has been so important for me in um, feeling more grounded in my spirituality, uh, feeling more honest or authentic in it, having done some wrestling and continuing to do so, which I don't feel settled at the moment. Uh, but there is something that uh, feels like this is just where I should be at this point. It's, it's, it's hard to articulate. 
Yeah, I, I think actually, you know, it's um, actually engaging with other traditions that has helped me feel more connected to the strand of the Christian tradition that does feel alive and speak to me. Um, and, you know, so the, the Vedantic traditions, particularly Advaita Vedanta, that um, often called non-dualism now, but the idea that the being that I know in me um, and the being that's in you is one being. And we're just as many mirrors or reflections of that. Um, this kind of felt spirituality, um, having that articulated in a particular kind of language has enabled me to say, return to the sayings of Jesus, the thoughts of St. Paul, um, and realize that they were driving at the same thing. Um, so like in John's gospel, where Jesus um, is said to have talked about how being in the Father um, is not just for him, but is for all followers. Um, and then when Paul develops the sense of taking on the mind of Christ, um, you know, that that comes alive for me, um, rather than just being comments that seem esoteric and obscure um, and don't really fit into, say, liturgies that you might come across in, in church. Um, so, yeah, that, that kind of, I mean, another little bit of my own journey was um, learning to meditate and doing that particularly through um, a, a school that was deeply influenced by um, Tibetan Buddhism. And um, in a funny sort of way, I think I never learned to pray in the Church of England before that point, um, because um, prayer was always about sort of petitioning. Um, which again stresses the gap and the difference um, and wasn't ever really taught as something that you could actually learn, at least in the first instance. Mm. Um, and it was something you kind of tried to do and it seemed like the lucky kind of got got the knack. Um, so this sort of um, Western school based on Tibetan ideas was really crucial. Um, for just learning the basics of sitting and breathing and paying attention and all those kind of basic things. Um, and But that then opened up um, the, the contemplative tradition. Um, I then realised that I was a theist rather than um, certainly as sort of Western Buddhism um, comes across as sort of non-theist, um, if not exactly atheist, but certainly non-theist. I, I realised that I was the theistic sense um, made increasing sense to me so then sort of that's why I move in a more Vedantic way um, but yeah that that kind of has helped me to um, yeah wholeheartedly embrace what I think um, a lot of Christian mystics from the time of Jesus from Jesus himself um, have been driving at but you know because it lives I feel it can live inside me I get what they're talking about in a felt direct way um, rather than just um, juggling it in my head. Yeah. I guess the thing that I'm always cautious of having explored other traditions and uh, found quite a lot in them that's been helpful uh, is that when I go back to Christianity, I'm going to see things that aren't quite there and I'm going to um, mold Christianity into something that's more in alignment with uh, with my um spiritual proclivities or uh, desires, um, like the whole idea of 
the non-dual aspect of Christianity that you could kind of find in there, but maybe sometimes I think it takes a twisting of the words or a leaving out of other uh, of other words, like the only way to the Father is through me. Like Christ is this intermediary to some great separate father. And so I come across things like that. And it, it's like kind of a roadblock for me. I'm like, but that's still there. Like as much as I want to believe that there's the Gnostic heart of Christianity or something, there's still these things that are in the scriptures that I, I bump up against and I have to, you know, okay, well, if I'm going to accept Christianity, I also, do I have to accept this or can I um, kind of discard this and see it as something that came later and maybe was even a, a mutation of the original message or something. Yeah. Do you find that? I do. I know exactly what you mean. And and of course, because statements like that, no one comes to the father except through me are generally regarded as excluding statements in, in the Christian world. You know, it's like you've got to be Christian or you're not on the right path at all. Um, they're, they're, they are hard to deal with. And, but there's a couple of ways that help me, I think back to the true meaning of that remark. One is that it's in John's gospel. And I think John's is the most developed of the gospels when it comes to understanding what would now be called non-dualism. So it's also in John's gospel where Jesus says, I and the father are one and you will be um, one with, with me too. Um, and so I think that that I am the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the father, but through me is, is, a, is a welcome to join that unity, that intimacy. Um, and it's Christ, as it were, speaking as the divine logos, which of course is an idea prominent in John's gospel, um, which runs through the whole of creation. Um, so it's a, in a way, it's a, a self-evident statement um, when you see it in that context. Um, and it's not about naming one tradition um, as the only way, it's about identifying in Christian language what's at the heart of all traditions because God of course isn't confined to any one tradition um, but then there's also another element which was more is more the kind of thing that Barfield would have said which is that um, I think Christianity and the emergence of Christianity was itself seminal in forming the consciousness that could understand what came to be called non-dualism. Um, you know, so Advaita Vedanta itself is post-Christian in terms of timing. Um, you know, Shankara wrote the commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita, uh, is it the third, fourth centuries CE? And um, I think that that was only possible three or four centuries after the emergence of Christianity because then it was the sense of being an individual with a gathered inner sense of unity that was made possible the mirror um, within us that could see the unity of all things in the cosmos as well. Um, it took, um, it, it was, the time was right for non-dualism to emerge because the consciousness had emerged um, to um, be able to understand uh, and appreciate the world in that way. Now, I'm not saying that Christianity directly influenced <laughs> Shankara. I have no idea about that, actually. Um, but certainly um, you can trace through what's sometimes called the axial age, um, the emergence of 
um, inner life as we understand it, um, which is why writers like the Buddha and so on still make sense to us now. Um, and yeah, so Christianity um, is kind of a bit pivotal, which I think is why you can read different kinds of remark in different parts of the New Testament. And you see it particularly in Paul. You know, Paul, I think, is really wrestling with the emergence of this perception. Mm. Um, so sometimes he can sound like an old style apocalyptic prophet. Um, you know, we'll be gathered in the clouds when the Lord returns, um, which was a way of thinking that emerged in the centuries before Jesus. Um, but then at other times he can say how he's dying every day and the mind of Christ has been born in him. Um, and which is much more um, non-dual. Yeah, mm. so Christianity, part of the wrestling, I think, is to see the wrestling that went on in the early church. Mm. Um, it, it's not like uh, um, non-dual delivered pristine. Um, it is the emergence of that kind of consciousness too. You know, the move, you mentioned this phrase, original participation of yeah. Barfields, which is a much more polytheistic sense of consciousness where the individual doesn't see or feel that the unity of all things is held within them rather they experience life as a kind of being immersed in a flow of meanings and the art of living is to navigate with your tribe and um, with your community um, a way through that great flood that great river um, of deities and spirits, you know, local and cosmic. Um, and it's only with the emergence of monotheism, which is very directly coupled to the emergence of the sense of the individual that you and I have, um, that you move through what Barfield called periods of alienation to a new kind of participation. Mm. Yeah. The thing about original participation <clears throat> that struck me when I first heard the phrase I was trying to reconcile in myself some of the experiences that I'd had through yoga and um, for want of a better word, shamanic practice, you know, with plant medicines and with other ways to induce an altered state. But um, these kind of immersive experiences, um, and I was trying to reconcile that with, uh, with my modern mind that has a, a, a understanding of psychology and inner parts and things like that. And particularly an experience I had with what seemed like an entity that had uh, attached itself to me and a whole kind of exorcism that I went through that was quite successful uh, psychologically. And I was trying to figure out, well, how should I see this? Should I just um, treat it as if it were an entity? Because that's experientially how it felt. Uh, but something in me was still saying, well, no, it was just a projection of uh, some inner trauma or an inner protector that had come online at an earlier time in your life. And, um, and so I had these kind of two uh, mindsets about that experience. And I was trying to like figure out how they could live together because um, I didn't feel it was quite right to just go back to what I was thinking of as a, a mythological mind what I found Owen Barfield called original participation. I couldn't quite just go back there and leave behind everything that I knew as a modern Western person with some understanding of psychology. 
And um, I couldn't disregard it either because experientially, that's how it felt. I wasn't sitting there uh, doing a psychoanalysis of the process I was engaged in. Um, And so uh, that was helpful just to have him name that as a kind of stage in the evolution of human consciousness. Uh, And then you use these three stages that he names and overlay them on Christianity to show the evolution of Christianity and how it follows these stages. So after that uh, original participation or the participation mystique that uh, Levi Brule named it and Jung liked that term a lot, I think he used it a lot, uh, where we're in this immersion in a spiritual reality or something archetypal reality almost where you're having to spend so much of your day uh, propitiating to the gods and the spirits and everything. I mean, that was a full-time job to live in that world. And, uh, and then that led to a, a separation, right? Which uh, I think he calls the with, uh, withdrawal participation. Right. And then following that is a reciprocal participation. Or final. So he actually talks about final participation more, but I use reciprocal because I feel it's more resonant. And final, he meant as in um, the direction of travel, like telos, um, rather than it's over. Um, Oh, something uh, toward, yeah. Yeah, something towards. Whereas reciprocal, I think, is the kind of the idea that the inner and the outer uh, resonate. But yeah, so that's just the detail. Yeah. Well, when I heard you map those out and I'd never heard the other two stages, I'd only heard the original participation. And so that was interesting. Um, Immediately what I saw was kind of a map of Jung's process of individuation, where at that first stage, the ego is totally in the self and there's no differentiation. And then there's a need to separate, but then the need to then uh, form an axis between the ego and the deep self, uh, would you say that that's accurate? That's kind of a macro micro comparison there. I think there's a huge amount in that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, for myself, Jung's complicated because he says different things at different times and yeah. it's got even more complicated since the publication of the red book um, <laughs> sure. when his, you know, inner life. Um, yeah. What did was, he really was, believe? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And I think that, Jungian psychology is a series of attempts to try and find ways of communicating what he went through during his own confrontation with the unconscious, as he called it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot in that. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that Barfield emphasized the evolution of consciousness, really dramatic periods where um, periods where very dramatically different senses of things um, obtained more than Jung. You know, Jung, I think, was inclined, for example, to, like when he travelled to Africa, um, see peoples there in a kind of waking dream state, um, Mm. rather than inhabiting the world fully alive and awake, but in just a very different way um, from modern consciousness. Um, and, And similarly, you know, whilst Jung could certainly make remarks like the gods have become diseases, I mean, that which would have been experienced as external um, and so therefore propitiated, as you say, through uh, endless rituals um, and um, particularly shared activities um, that were broadly sort of religious in inverted commas. Um, He, I think, 
could be inclined at least at times to sort of only psychologize um, all that. Um, you know, he would often say, I'm just a periodical psychologist. Um, and so I'm, I'm you know, I, I, I'm ambivalent about the existence of God, but there's certainly a God image in us. He could say things like that. Now, I think latterly towards the end of his life where he felt his reputation was secure, he came out much more overtly. And so and he let it rip you know. in his later years. Yeah, yeah I think he, a lot of that to me has to do with his public persona and him wanting to present psychology, analytical psychology as a as a real science and all that. So he's very careful about what he would say. Right. But what he really yeah. believed. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, your experience there and, and wanting to um, remain open rather than try and pin it down, I think is. It feels to me, as you said it, like that is precisely um, where we're at with our consciousness now, that yeah. we do have very developed ways of describing inner life through various kinds of depth psychology, psychoanalysis, other things. And But what we're not so sure about is how that relates to what Barfield called the inside of the whole world. Um, you know, you might say the cosmos itself has a psychology. Um, it's mm -hmm. as full yeah. of... Like the living, Mundi. Or yeah, exactly. Living entities as, as our inner life is. Um, mm. But of course, you know, how that then relates to the unity of all things as well. So it's not just a question of kind of going back um, to an older consciousness, which had its own sophistication, um, mm -hmm. but doesn't really work for us now. Um, yeah. you know, partly because, like you and I have both done, as individuals, we're able to drop in and out of different traditions and try and make sense and gather, which you know wouldn't have been an option. I don't think, not just because practically there wasn't the internet or whatever in the ancient world um, to do that, but because it, it would have... Um, there wasn't a gathered enough sense of the individual. You had to do it in a shared or collective setting. So couldn't, as it were, track your own individual journey. Um, so what you're describing is a very complicated, but nonetheless um, very now, I think, experience of knowing that our inner life and the inner life of the world around is in relationship. Um, but we are precisely, I think, at the time when we're trying to remake sense of that, you know, trying to find out how not just our own life, inner lives are enchanted, but the, the cosmos, again, nature is enchanted too. And we partly do that by borrowing from older traditions, experimenting mm -hmm. with them, seeing what can work, but also having to make something of it that fits our consciousness now too. And that's often hard. Um, it can leave us feeling alienated as much as in some sort of reciprocal relationship with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the feeling for me is sometimes being like lost between two worlds or two eras or something um, and not quite knowing what the bridge is, if there is a bridge, if there's a need to bridge <laughs> or just to be uh, content, kind of holding the tension of the seeming opposites, you know, is that my role or, or is that, you know, the task that's being asked of me? Um, like, should there ever be any reconciliation? I don't know. Or should we just get better at um, moving between kind of uh, modes of being or modes of consciousness? Uh, maybe that's, that's where we're at and where we should be going. I don't know. Any thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I try and look for kind of leads and threads. And here's just a couple. I mean, one comes out of my own psychotherapy practice, um, which is one of the great revelations to me in my own personal therapy, but then also in terms now of working with other people, is how we can move across different experiences of time. And sometimes time is like clock time. Sometimes it's more like revelatory time. Um, sometimes it's timeless. And you, you know this quite routinely in the therapy session, partly because people come to the awareness that things that happen in the psyche, it doesn't matter when they happened, they can still mm -hmm. be as active now as they were 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Yeah, the past isn't dead. It's not even past. Yeah, exactly. So the timelessness yeah. of the psyche. Um, and it becomes, but it becomes possible when you're conscious of that to sort of almost move across different zones of, of time quality um, mm -hmm. and um, become even, you know, sort of skillful at that. Um, so that feels to me like an important sense now. Um, and then another um, area which I feel there's a lot that's beginning to emerge now quite strongly actually is in the non-dual traditions where people are critiquing the older Vedantic understanding of the world being Maya in the sense of delusion and are starting to talk about Maya instead as our confusion about the status of the world around about us and learning that it too is the kind of dance, the Leela or the excitations of the one consciousness. Um, and so radiates and shines with consciousness itself as well. I'm a, a, a teacher that I've gained a huge amount from in terms of thinking about things in this way is Rupert Spira, um, a, 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 mm, a, British teach, a British teacher of non-Vedanta, um, used to be a potter. Um, become he's got a, a very sort of clear, precise way of talking about this. And he, I think, um, is quite consciously um, picking up on the, the strands within Vedanta. It's not to, um, it's not that they didn't exist before, but to understand the world um, as the dance of consciousness that, so we can know of the oneness of all things in our multiple experiences, not just as would have been the traditional approach when we withdraw from the world and go and say live in a cave as a hermit yeah. and try and exclude what would have been thought of as just delusion as much as possible. So that feels like another way in which you know we are moving towards um, something that's a bit more teleological for now, not just kind yeah. of trying to keep old traditions alive. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it sounds like the advaitins that you're uh, talking about are actually discovering tantra <laughs> yeah no no tantra would have is is the older form of this yeah so you know if there was the vedantic movement where you just take a step back to discover the true nature of the brahman then the tantra is when you sort of return and find it's there too yeah and, and i think when uh when tantra uh came to fruition it was a time when it was recognized that uh the old ways didn't work anymore and that um householders had to have a spiritual uh, practice and tradition um, that didn't require them to be ascetics or to deny life and how to embrace life and uh, very much um, 
Yeah, the unity and diversity idea and that it is a, all a play of the one and to be part of that play too and enjoy life to its fullest, to me, um, sounds to be the most advanced at this point in my understanding and in my life, it's the one that resonates with me the most, the kind of worldview and way of being in the world. Um, but, I, you know, is there a, a tantric Christianity, I wonder, you know? So we come to this yeah. reciprocal participation. And, and so that's been a hard one for me to understand what's meant by that, because in a way, uh, I'm not sure. So is the difference there between original participation is that now there's a, a clear eye, there's an individual, and then there's, um, well, everything else maybe we could say. And that, uh, what's the, yeah, can you talk a bit about that? Is it about like interdependence, like Thich Nhat Hanh's idea of interdependence and um, recognizing the individual not being completely absorbed in the world? Or help me understand, please. Yeah, well, insofar as I understand it myself, of course. But um, yeah, um, I think a summary which comes from Barfield that I found very helpful is um, the sense that I can only say I am, and you can only say I am, and everybody that has metacognition or self-consciousness can say I am. That is just a reflection or mirroring of the divine I am, um, the name given to God in the Jewish tradition originally. Um, and, you know, Jesus, of course, talks a lot about being I am, lots of I am statements in John's gospel again. And um, so that's the reciprocity that you might say you feel it in different moments. There's the one moment where you can feel I am, and so therefore, matter as an individual um, and Western culture is based on that idea. So hence, we have individual rights and um, protecting the right of the individual I am and one person, one vote um, in democracy. Um, so it's in its secular forms, it's um, very present and assumed. Um, and, you know, we get offended by other cultures that don't see the individual in that way. Um, but that's to strip it of its ontological roots, um, which is a broadly theological understanding that um, we as human individuals self-consciously reflect the one God. Um, and so my individuality and your individuality needn't lead to individualism as if we're separate, um, which causes a lot of problems, of course, in modern culture as well. Um, but actually is the portal through which we can own and know our connection um, because the found the fount of our individuality is the same, is the one God. And so we know of our unity through our individuality. Um, a, a, a beautiful way that this is explored, I found actually in Dante's Divine Comedy, um, which I've also written about. And in The Paradise particularly, the third part of the Divine Comedy, Dante realises that people he meets there become more and more unified with the divine, the more they become themselves. Um, in paradisal sight, becoming yourself does not mean that you exist in splendid isolation or separateness. It means precisely the opposite. 
um, that you harmonize and resonate more and more because you're giving expression more and more to the wellspring of your individuality, which is the one God. Um, and yeah, so that would be a kind of Christian tantrism, I think. Um, mm. And uh, so it, it, it is it is there, I think, in the Christian tradition, um, you know, even known about in terms of where these resources can be found, but not often much talked about. Um, you know, in, in Dante, people love talking about the infer inferno um, nowadays, um, yeah. which is, of course, the state where people just feel they're separate and lost and isolated and agonized. Um, it's, it, it's hard to talk about the paradise in the modern world because I think we've lost the consciousness, though it's being recovered um, as, you know, is even we're talking about now. Hmm. Yeah, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, Jung's admonition to not imitate Christ in a literal way, to not mimic uh, his speech and actions and things, not, um, you know, put on a brown cloak and sandals, uh, um, but to imitate his uh, his striving toward completely being himself, something like that. And that resonates, I think, with what you're saying. And also, you know, when you first started speaking, I was thinking about this kind of hyper-individualization in modern culture. And I was like, hmm, is this like a regression or something? And then as you continue to talk, especially about Dante and the paradise, and that that's actually the way toward unity is to become more and more individual, I wonder if that's the talos of the kind of current cultural movement of um, stripping away all kind of uh, conditioned and imposed categories of self and really striving to assert your utter uniqueness, like to not belong in any category. That's what I mean is really happening in our culture now, even if it's a very loud minority, it's still a loud minority and it's still happening, I think, to a greater degree than we've ever seen before. So that would be a definitely um, a kind of positive view of what's happening, that maybe it is leading toward more unity in, you know, more defining of the di diversity. I don't know. I think, I think we're at a dangerous time with that because when individuality is just seen you might say on a horizontal plane yeah and yes. you can make links with those that you feel similar to but you you're as easily likely to identify yourself by those you don't feel links to mm -hmm. um but when there's the um the sort of vertical element is introduced as well then you realize that everyone's struggle to be themselves is to also transcend themselves to move beyond themselves um, and that that's where there's a kind of freedom in the categories that we inherit. You know, we're, we're, we don't hold on to an identity for fear that if we don't have that identity, then we'll lose all identity. Quite the yeah. opposite. We are able to draw in what we've inherited and play with it because we're as much aware of what lies beyond it as what is um, expressed within it. Um, and so then you get the transcendent sense coming in and um, you love difference as much as you love similarity because yeah, you realize yeah. that everybody is in, involved in this um, striving to be more than they are. 
um, not just desperate to hold on to who they are for fear that they'll be attacked or undone. Yeah, you you really put your finger on uh, the unease I have about <clears throat> what's happening in the culture now, the hyper-individualization and the need to assert one's uniqueness and all that is, um, you know, what's been kind of running through that for me is the thought of, but if this happens without a spiritual basis, without that verticality that you talked about, then it's just going to lead to division. It's it, We're not going to find the unity because there's nothing, it's not a larger story holding all of that division. Uh, that's my worry, actually, and and uh, I don't know where it's leading, but uh, I'm concerned that we might yeah. not get there to this, you know, beautiful unity and diversity. Uh, you know, it's all lila, and we're all in it together. You know. Well, and the truth is, of course, we won't get to it in mortal life. Um, it only exists in immortal life, which can be tasted and known now but ultimately i think does lie on the other side of mortal death and um so that's part of this business about being in the world but not of the world Mm -hmm. um to use another good christian expression we're called to um be in two places at once if you like um and have that two-ness in dialogue in resonance to discover the unity that it points to as a third thing um it's another reason why trinities are in, intimately involved in the Christian tradition, I think, and quite helpfully so, um, when it's understood as holding the dynamic that is realising our final participation in divine life, um, rather than saying of being a social model or something like that, which it can collapse into. Um, yeah, and I mean, another really important figure um, for me, partly because I live in South London, um, is William Blake. Um, who lived in this part of the world. And I think he's another, what you might call, tantric master in the Christian tradition. And he was very clear that whilst we're all headed to what he called Eden eternity, we do that by building Golganuza here and now. So we struggle to um, build the city of God. Um, but in this life, it rises and then it falls. It rises and then it falls. It rises and then it falls. But it's in that action that we realise the qualities and develop the perceptions that actually are the preparation for living in Eden eternity. So mm. again, there's a kind of more nuanced account of what it is to live now that's not just about a kind of flatland as if it, it can arrive at any moment here and now. Um, it is here and now, but we appreciate that here and nowness by letting go also of what we know here and now. Um, I think this is part of the subtlety of the idea of dying to self um, that's in the Christian tradition, that um, you need to work on yourself um, to understand more about who you are, but that is, in a way, only so you can let go of yourself. Um, the small self, you might say, this would be relating back to what you're saying about ego or, or little self and big self in Jung's terms. Um, you, you know, um, it's, it, it's no good just saying I've got to like blast the ego. That won't mm-hmm. take you anywhere. Um, it might do you a lot of damage, in fact. Um, but to understand who you are um, is the first step towards becoming more than who you are. Um, because you, you can sort of see more 
with your mind's eye when you see what's immediately present in your own life. Yeah, yeah. As the image of yourself, your small self becomes more defined, you're better able to distinguish it from everything else. And, you know, one way to do that is the kind of uh, neti neti or via negativa approach. Like, you know, you said earlier, all, all I can say is I am. But I thought, well, I could also say I am not. Um, there's a lot of things that I can say I'm not. Um, and so that's one way to define the I am in a, in a way. What's so wonderful about that is, of course, to say I am not requires a clear sense <laughs> of I amness too. So you're immediately into the dialectic. Um, yeah, I mean, experientially, just to throw one more sort of reflection on this, this really started making sense to me when I thought that the spiritual adepts that I know who seem to have realized this perception are also very pronounced characters. Um, mm -hmm. They're not sort of identical humans. They are very present, palpable individuals, but their individuality channels and resonates and brings in more. Um, and so I realized there's something about the both and in this that's really important. Um, yeah. I mean, just, you know, we all have an image of the Dalai Lama, for example, but whatever else you make of the Dalai Lama, he is definitely an individual um, with his laugh and his joking and so on. And yet even his, his glasses, I mean, his individuality. Yeah. Yeah. He's got like trademark glasses. He's got a look that's been cultivated, you know, Yeah. <laughs> and like brand, brand consistency over time. <laughs> so he's not, he's there's, icon, there is guess, a self you know, there. Yeah. He, he's an icon though, isn't he? Which is, you know, it's it's instantly recognizable, but also instantly bringing in a presence. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, that's great. I love where we kind of ended up. Um, of course, there's like so much more we could dig into, but I want to respect your time. Um, you know, I'm curious, like I'm interested in learning more about Owen Barfield, um, but I haven't known quite where to begin. So having had this conversation and so maybe people listening who have also been wrestling with some of these ideas, um, where would it be a good place for us to start? He, unlike his friends, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, he wasn't such a genius writer. And so he mm. can be a struggle. But there's a couple of um, books now which were talks he gave actually in the US after Lewis died he became quite famous for talking about his friend C.S. Lewis who was already famous um, and then people became a bit interested in his ideas too and realized that actually they're woven through quite a lot of Lewis's and Tolkien's work um, and so there's a little book called Speaker's Meaning which is a collection of talks that Barfield gave that's a pretty good introduction and then he also gave talks, wrote articles, which um, have been gathered together in a book called The Rediscovery of Meaning. And they're, they're quite varied. Some are quite a hard read, but some are quite accessible in terms of his analysis of our predicament now. Um, so those would two, be two yeah. books I recommend. I mean, his magnum opus is called Saving the Appearances. And maybe a key there is to realise it's almost a collection of essays as much as a single book. So if you don't get one chapter, sort of, you know, hold mm -hmm. onto your chair and read another one, and that will speak to you more directly. <laughs> That's great. And then, um, of course, you've uh, you've produced a lot of content. You've got great videos on your website and, uh, of course, your books. So there's a lot more to explore with you. And I, I mentioned this, uh, I think, before we started recording, but 
uh, as I was um, sifting through some of your work, looking for the threads that resonated with me, I found a bunch of dialogues that you've recorded with Rupert Sheldrake over quite a few years, I think back to 2017 or something, you've been having these regular chats with uh, Rupert and I find them just so wonderful to eavesdrop into. Like I find myself wishing that I had a Rupert to go hang out with for a half hour and just talk about anything because the scope of your uh, kind of inquiry and curiosity and understanding is so broad and touches on so many um, areas that, you know, I'm fascinated by. So that that's a wonderful resource too, just to drop in with some friends and hear them chat about really interesting things. Oh, it's so great to hear you say that because they began when Rupert's book, The God Delusion, came out. Sorry, um, The Science Delusion, his response to Richard right, Dawkins' yeah, yeah. book, The God Delusion. And, and I said to him, do you know, people just need to hear you speak because it's the spirit of how you talk that matters quite as much as what you say, because it, it's so clearly free and open and curious um, and, um, you know, vivifying. Um, and so we first of all started with the early dialogues were around sort of science religion type questions. But then we carried on partly because it really helped me find my voice. Um, speaking with Rupert too Mm. Um, and so we could have more like dialogues rather than me sort of putting questions to him Um, and they're very much designed we get together and we have an exchange about what we've been reading about or thinking about recently and the idea is that that very much prompts thoughts and reflections in others so it's a great um, joy to hear that that's precisely the effect it has. Oh, yeah. And there's a quality to them. I think you just touched on, uh, you know, and saying people need to hear you speak. Uh, someone of his um, his experience and also just what an intelligent guy who's explored so much very deeply and been able to write about it and so kind of consolidate his ideas and things. He comes across as so non-authoritative, and I, I find that just so bloody refreshing uh, that uh, he seems so ambivalent and open to everything, and everything is valid, and he's able to then um, compare things kind of on an equal ground that uh, I just find so refreshing and wonderful. And um, I, I think, you know, we need, like, more elders like him uh, who just open things up you know, and maybe that's um, part of how younger people who are so engaged with identity and uh, expression of individuality, maybe it's the elders like him who have kind of been there, done that, um, who have this perspective that's so wide open and all encompassing. Maybe there's the bridging of those uh, two kind of impulses that can come together to lead us into the reciprocal participation. I don't know. I wonder if there's something there to that. Yeah, no. Um, I, th- I mean, I think that he, he also has through his own life kind of lived the religious moments of the West, but being able to contribute to it. And so not just get stuck in the alienation, um, partly because he went to India himself um, in a really formative part of his life. And so lived with B. Griffiths, the 
Christian Benedictine monk who went to India and set up an ashram. And so, um, right, the Christian yogi, you know, yeah, exactly. Christian yeah. Tantra, so that sort of Vedantic Christian dialogue was going on at the seminal moment for Rupert. And it's partly it was expanding of his mind um, and freeing, but also he it's very clear that I mean, for one very practical thing that links back to perhaps what we were saying about the church in the West now is that um, in India, he said, you do have priests, but priests aren't the only religious functionaries around and about. Um, you know, if you want a sacrifice offered, then you go to the priests and it's done. But as important are the sadhus or the prophets um, would be the kind of Christian equivalent there. But that's got rather lost in the West with these very hierarchical monochrome institutions that tend to shape Christianity. Um, and so I think of Rupert as a prophet. Um, mm. He's like a kind of sadhu um, in that his whole way of life is orientated around um, his perception and discovery. Um, and so I think he is a really hugely important Christian figure as well as someone in these science and religion debates. Um, and, you know, it's encountering him that has helped me so much as a result. We need um, a kind of diversity of religious forms and types. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, maybe you know this in terms of um, relating to shamanistic traditions as well. You know, people that can be guides would be another um, form that we need. And maybe therapists are a bit like that, actually. That's why they've arisen. And someone like Jung um, is as much a guide as anything else. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the, the signs of this diversity um, emerging but maybe they just need to be sort of named or embraced that little bit more yeah that's just what came up for me is that um yeah perhaps they're already there uh but yeah just kind of unacknowledged or unnamed um because yeah the christian mystics were so denigrated uh i don't know if we can recover that uh anyone who comes out calling themselves a christian mystic now seems like a bit of a kook and and sometimes they are just kooky and so uh, people don't take them seriously. Um, so, yeah, but someone like Rupert, I can see that. And uh, definitely, um, you know, I could see myself sitting on the pew next to him. <laughs> well, he's he's because he's also got this side that is very keen on the Church of England. He loves. Yeah, I know. He yeah. loves Anglican music and cathedrals. He'll say, you know, if you want to do a shamanistic thing, then what you do when you arrive in a new town or city is go to the ancient church and light a candle. And that is to say, that's to greet um, not just God, but the, God the, of the spirit place. of the place too. Yeah, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, well, Mark, it's been really fun talking to you. I really, uh, yeah. You, I love that you've obviously been immersed in this so much and have like really worked out your thinking about a lot of it, probably through your writing and speaking and all of that. And so it comes across is the uh, kind of so clear. And I, I do appreciate that, especially when I feel like I'm in the kind of the muddled zone at the moment. And uh, I think clarity is starting to open up maybe at least for this stage of my wrestling match with Christianity. <laughs> but uh, it's definitely, you've been um, helped clarifying some things for me. So I do appreciate it. Yeah, well, look, thank you too. And, uh, you know, one finds ways of talking about certain things, but of course you're you're trying to stay at the edge of your own awareness and, and sense of things too, because that keeps it alive. So I appreciate being asked these questions because that um, is about, 
trying to stay at this living edge so that this third thing might happen in our dialogue because that's really you know where we're headed yeah good stuff so um do you have any courses coming up i noticed that you uh recently ran an online course that i just missed out on but it was intriguing um anything coming up that people can tune into yeah i if, if people you know keep in touch with what's uh, happening on my website um but um i've run a course called we must be mystics which is about owen barfield and christianity and based on my book but we'll certainly run that again Um, there'll be um, further iterations of that Um, i found dante um, and the divine comedy to be hugely illuminating for our times now Um, he wrote 700 years ago but was actually the first italian to use the word modern and was quite clear he was writing for modern times um, and so um, I regularly speak about Dante. William Blake is another huge inspiration for me because I feel he's in the air um, mm-hmm. around me. So I'm working hard on working out how to present Blake as a religious or spiritual figure. He's often presented as a social figure, a political figure, a poet, an artist, um, which yeah. he was. But um, the, the spiritual side can get, um, well, not just lost, but even actively erased from his um work and yeah i think he's a crucial figure for our times too now so mm. i'm, I'm so happy looking to hear these that, new yeah. guides and by relating to them you know it's yeah. part of my own development i'm so happy to hear that um you'd be a good guide i think for me into blake he's been someone who's been on you know the edge of my awareness and you know i'll i'll get some quotes here and there from him or take a look at uh some of his um paintings and things um but i I haven't felt quite able to go into him on my own. And so I think just unconsciously, I've been waiting for the right guy to go, all right, let's go explore Blake. And I think you'll be a good one. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, look, if you want to talk again sometime, I'd be happy to talk about Blake because that would help me just develop ah. my ideas that a little bit more as well. Okay. Well, I'd definitely be in, uh, I'd be in uncharted territory for myself. So <laughs> That would be fun. I like going there, actually. Um, Okay, Mark, thanks so much. And uh, I'll send people to your website to find out more. And maybe we'll uh, see each other down the road. For sure. Let's do that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Take care. Bye. (laughs) The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the medicine path. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.